What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. Tonight, this is actually a special request um, episode because uh, one of my coworkers, um, Dr. Starr, I won't give her last name, um, but I don't know, I'm sure she wouldn't care, but just in case, um, she asked me if we would talk about uh, the new and improved American Diabetes Association guidelines from 2021. Um, and I told her, Sure. <laughs> sure. And so um, this is, uh, we've gotten a few uh, suggestions recently, but this is a friend of mine, so I had to move her to the top of the list. She's somebody I work with, so got to help my homies out first. Is it improved? I guess we'll find out. We'll see. It's I new. Guess. There's some improvements, and then there's some... Some stuff. It's I, all fine. I don't necessarily agree with, but yeah, we'll talk about we'll it. We'll talk about it. But um, yes, so that's that. Um We'll to get into that stuff. It's February. Winter um, is in full swing. Apparently, yeah, I had to pull out a snowplow to get here. Did you? No, we're <laughs> not in Texas, but you know, there's there's apparently something. Well, we're not going to get any snow, but there the whole thing's coming this way. You know, yeah, it's definitely. Uh, I don't know. We got snow that one like a couple years back. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, I feel bad for the people in Texas. It's just like yeah, nobody there rough. has a clue. Like how to not only they're like here, like we don't well, know how to drive yeah, in it. Exactly. Like if we got hit with a similar storm, we yeah, would be in the whole city shuts down. Yeah, you know, the whole thing shuts. Nobody down. has a clue what to do. Nobody has anything prepared. But then they have the power outages too. You mm-hmm. know? Man, yeah, it rough. was like sixty four in my house last night. And I was freezing. Yeah. It's kind of like what it always is in my I house. I know. You got the dog. <laughs> we have a big Alaskan Malamute, and he gets hot in like 70-degree weather. So he belongs we keep in our, Alaska. Yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> I didn't feel bad bringing him all the way down here, but we have to keep our house ridiculously cold just for him. He'll go outside like now where it's, it's you know, cold for us. He'll mm-hmm. go outside and just lay on his back upside down and go to sleep. <laughs> He's just perfectly content. <laughs> perfectly content. But, uh, yeah, so where should we jump in with this? Um I guess we'll just kind of touch on maybe some of the nuances. Yeah. So um, they call the 2021 guideline confusing because it was put out in 2020, but at the end of 2020. Yeah. Um, I feel like they, they do that every year, right? Yeah. And yeah, I guess they do. Sometimes I feel like it leaks into the actual year. At least they get a new guideline out as opposed to like some of these guidelines. It's like seven years. Seven years. And you don't like, hear any uh, updates. Like blood pressure, right? Yeah. They take forever. It's 2000, what, 17? Yeah, they brag like right in the first sentence. It's like um, annual update since 1989. Yeah. It's like, cool, good job. That's actually impressive because mm-hmm. most do not. <laughs> the American Diabetes Association getting cocky. <laughs> <laughs> Doing something right. Um, so, yeah, so this, there are, if you look at the whole guideline, there's a lot of redundant stuff, right? So it's there's a lot of things they just leave the same. So usually when something like this comes out, you want to focus on the updates. So updates with this uh, include some uh, pharmacologic updates as far as recommendations around comorbidities like heart failure and CKD. Um, they also uh, put a heavier emphasis on um, continuous um, glucose monitoring devices because and also just in general, improved technology and kind of how to use that in diabetes. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then they also talk about, um, improving care and promoting health in different populations and social determinants of health. So some updates from the last one, but a lot of it is kind of the same. Um, one thing I noticed that, uh, in section two, which is like the classification and diagnosis of diabetes. Um, one thing that was good is they kind of gave more discussion on, um, what's referred to as latent autoimmune diabetes in adults or LADA. Um, this is something that I personally didn't like put much thought into like before. Um, but now working at my current job at, at Fetter, um, we've, ha- I have seen probably 10 to 20 patients who for years have been listed as a type two, um, because they develop diabetes much later in life. And so it was just kind of in their overweight, they fit the like, you know, phenotypic description of like a type two diabetic, so to speak. Um, but for whatever reason, they're not their their blood sugar is just not getting controlled. They meet with the dietitian. They're you know they'll be on all the right meds, and their their A1C is still high. So we'll we'll get a C peptide on those patients, and it comes back like super super low. So they're not even their bodies aren't even producing insulin anymore. So we ha- would have to treat them like a type one, and they've been basically not being treated correctly that whole time. Right. So that's something that I I don't know how often you know people are running into this like in your clinics and whatnot, but that is something that a hundred percent you should at least be on the lookout for. Yeah. 
I thought I called one like two days ago, but the C-peptide came back today normal. We had a patient who, um, his A1C has only been controlled um, when she was pregnant and they put her on insulin. Then it got controlled. But she got diabetes shortly after having a really bad bout of pancreatitis. And so we thought, like, no way. She's probably, her beta cells have been destroyed, all that. And uh, But no, still producing insulin. And uh, so we went ahead and started on Jardians instead. But I, nice. thought, I thought I was going to call it. And I was like, nope, I was wrong. I've had other patients though that I'm like, nah, there's no way. This is probably a waste of time. And then it comes back, C peptides like 0.1 or like almost undetectable. So make sure you're following, following up with those types of patients if you see them because that's more, much more common, I feel like, than I ever would have guessed. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, another addition they made um, was to kind of the prevention and delay of diabetes. So they created a subsection. Um, talking about the delivery and dissemination of lifestyle behavior change for diabetes prevention. So it's kind of long-winded, but it's based on the DPP trial, uh, which we know looked at lifestyle intervention and um, in pre-diabetic patients and how it can delay the progression and how effective that was. So basically they just give resources like the CDC and various different things. Um, they give information um and give you recommendations on how to disseminate that information on lifestyle and behavior change. So, you know, taking, taking some, some steps towards making sure that patients actually do that or that you are at least have the, uh, at least have the, um, the resources that you need. They also reference pharmacists. They say other allied health professionals like uh, pharmacists and di and diabetes care and education specialists also have the capability of delivering lifestyle behavior change programs that may be considered for diabetes prevention efforts. Ayo. So thanks for the shout out. Yeah, especially when those pharmacists also are diabetes educators. Got the, <sighs> when you got that double it's like threat, a humdinger. Something, yeah, as they <laughs> say. Um, one of the, another thing that they, they've mentioned this before, but um, something that you know, may, may not be familiar with or may not see very often. If you have a patient who, let's say that their A1C is elevated, but when you look at their glucose levels, it does not, reflect that um so their glucose normals their glucose levels in the blood are normal but you check the a1c that's really high um they say that basically um in this case that they're talking about they want you they're assuming you already have a diagnosis but things that can things that can kind of cause that to happen like hemoglobinopathies um sickle cell disease Sometimes um, pregnant patients in their second or third trimesters, um, patients that have like a glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, patients that are undergoing hemodialysis, um, recent blood loss or transfusion, patients that are on erythropoietin therapy, um, things like that can all um, raise A1C without like in, like incorrectly, basically. It's not actually reflecting the, the patient's true um glucose levels in the, in the serum. So you, in those patients, they say that you need to make sure that you're using the plasma blood glucose criteria for diagnosis and not the A1C. Um, and also too, if you have a patient who's all of a sudden their A1C comes back really high, um, but their glucose isn't, you know, showing, isn't reflecting that, then maybe it'd be a good idea to do some further evaluation, some differential diagnosis to try and figure out maybe what's going on. Mm. I had a, an older physician quiz me on that one time with the hemoglobinopathy. Yeah. I got that part. Did you nail it? I got that part right, but then if I, I'm glad he didn't go further because I couldn't tell you much about it. See, I've never been very good at the whole pimping thing, you know, when they ask you the questions. I mean, I can I can generally answer some, but, um, you know, it's always like, I'm just like, oh, I don't know. And then a couple minutes later, I'm like, dang, I knew that answer. I just remember now. So if you guys are looking for a sound bite to steal from the show, just get calls saying, I've never been really good at the whole pimping thing. <laughs> And then just send it to everyone you know. That's <laughs> what they call it, right? It is what they call it. Though it's we just, never did in pharmacy school. I think it was like a med school thing. That's, I, I never, got on rotations you never did? I, that's not how I read. I mean, I just called it like them asking me questions, unless I just didn't know I'm, the cool lingo. I'm going to say, I think you just didn't know that. <laughs> I think, I think the asking you questions is basically what pimping is. No, I know that's what it is. I, I just didn't call it pimping. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, I was going to say. I thought that referenced to legal behavior. Well, well, depends on what state you're in, I guess. What is that called? An allegory? Something like that. Or am I, am I forgetting ninth grade English? It's an onomatopoeia. I'm just kidding. I know it's not that. It's <laughs> a funny word to say. <laughs> Throwing things out. It's a soliloquy. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> All right. What are we talking about? Diabetes? Right on. Right. Um, I'm going to definitely steal that sound clip later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Send it to my mom. Yeah. Look at your son. <laughs> 
Um, so what else is different? Um, we so talked- one, one thing they added, which is, um, I think more relevant to this year is they added kind of a whole section on immunizations, which they usually reference of course, but they made a nice table, which is pretty much a, um, copy and paste of the CDC guidelines for immunizations though. They, they give the updated, um, kind of PC, PCV 13, um, recommendation about it being you know kind shared of decision shared making. decision making and all that i think that was well you know man 2020 flew by that might have been a 2019 it rec- was yeah. yeah so um it might have been in the last one but they they mentioned it in this one too so i watched the uh the acip meeting like live because we've been talking about how garbage pcv 13 right. is for anyone over 65 regardless of COVID. we've been talking about that study for like, for a minute now and um you know, yeah, the, since I was your, I mean, the first time I heard it, I guess, I guess Dr. Ward talked about it too, but the, I remember you presenting on it um, when I was on your rotation, so that must have been 2017. Four, yeah, I almost said 14. I wasn't even a pharmacist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such an idiot. That's when you were on rotation. Yeah, that's when I was on rotation. Yeah, 2017, I remember you presenting it at, uh, yeah, to the Somebody. group of pharmacists. But Columbia. yeah, it's one of the, oh, that's right. That's yeah. the same. That's the same. I took uh, a road trip with you to Columbia. That's right, because that was the same day that I was making fun of Prevnar and didn't realize the two people in the front row were Prevnar yeah, reps. Prevnar reps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they were probably not happy, but oh well. Thanks for the free lunch. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Um, no, I remember the person that was putting the thing was like, you know, the person, the people you were just sitting directly in front of you while you're talking with the Prevnar reps. I was like, well, cause right. I think they literally came and started speaking after you. Yeah. I'm like, pretty, hey. I'm pretty, cause like, let's talk about Prevnar. Yeah. It was like right after they started <laughs> after talking I about just it. Belittled it. Like I think crazy. I realized that it was very uncomfortable because I barely remember what they said. I just remember being very uncomfortable the whole time they were talking. I, cause I, I was like, this is like opposite of what Mike just said. Yeah. I thought it was hysterical. <laughs> it was um, cause I saw people looking around like, wait a minute. I, yeah. All these new grad pharmacists are like, what? And if you don't, so what do we do? If you're not familiar with it, it's because it takes, in order to prevent one case of um, community acquired pneumonia that I could treat with like a ZPAC potentially, um, you, you have to treat a thousand patients with the vaccine if they're 65 and over. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that was, was garbage about the trial. But my whole point of that was I remember watching the ACIP meeting where the guy from Pfizer, I guess he was like their one of their top guys. I don't think he was a CEO, but whoever it was, a high-level guy, was just like, no, wait a minute. We have good outcome data. And he was like arguing that people were like, hey, no. We've had zero changes in uh, occurrence of pneumonia. We're not going to – you got your billions of dollars. Which don't they have some more pneumonia vaccines in the pike anyway? There's a, a 20 serotype and a 15 serotype. Mm. in the pipeline that are both conjugate vaccines mm. so we'll say so like pcv 13 yeah i think one of them i think pfizer is the 20 pfizer is the 20 mm-hmm. so that it'll just I take i mean it'll just, it'll take, just yeah it'll PCV take place, 13th place. yeah be interesting well be excited it, to see that data yeah anyways that people are now the ones that complain about us going on tangents say well that was a relevant tangent yeah yeah see relevant thank you cole yeah Appreciate immunizations yeah they're in there they're in there Copy and pasted. Um, the, one other thing that they do mention that I feel like they kind of touched on this last year, but maybe not, um, is the A1C goals. So a couple of them, um, some slight modifications. Like when I say, I say that hesitantly because I'd I have to go back and look because I thought they mentioned this last year too. But um, when we typically think of like the ADA's guidelines for A1C, the Typical answer you hear, especially from like students and things like that is, um, goal of less than seven, you know, non-pregnant adult patients, less than seven. Um, you know, the, the ADA does say as long as they don't have significant hypoglycemia, that's kind of the main goal for most patients. Um, one thing that they mentioned, uh, this time is that uh, if you're using like ambulatory glucose, um, profiles or glucose management indicators that you should assess, um, like basically the time in range um, and the time below range uh, to make sure that uh, the time, basically the the in range should be greater than 70% and then like below range um, should be less than 4%. So you definitely don't want to be having hypoglycemia and you want to hopefully have them in the correct um, range. So typically like fasting, like 80 to 130 kind of thing um, for 70% of the time or more. Uh, but one thing that they also mentioned this time is that uh, the less stringent A1C goals. 
So I think we've talked about this a few other times from other guidelines and whatnot, but um, they do say that a, a goal like is the example of less than 8% um, may be appropriate for patients that either have a limited life expectancy or um, patients that have, you know, if side effects or harms, basically hypoglycemia from the treatments and the, the risk of that is greater than the benefit. So if <clears throat> the way I personally kind of think about it, because I like what the um, like the American College of Physicians even says with if a patient doesn't have a um, a 10 year, I think it's a 10 year life expectancy. They don't even give a goal. They basically just say treat um, to symptom relief and then go from there. So me personally, like my, if I have an older patient, especially if they have a bunch of comorbidities, again, this is just my opinion. Um, I make my first goal with the patient because I want to give them steps that they can kind of reach. My first goal is to get them less than nine because that's most of my patients are like in the teens. So for them, less than nine is a big jump or a big drop. And then from there, once they get there, as long as they're not having hypoglycemia and things like that, then I'll try to push them either to below eight or below seven, depending on um, their age and comorbidities and all that. But I do kind of start them off with, Hey, let's get below nine. That's our first big milestone. And then kind of use that as a, you know, platform to, to start with. But I have patients that are like, you know, in their late eighties that I'm like, um, there's no reason for me to right. push their A1C lower. It's kind of like there was a patient that I saw who, um, was very old and probably had a less than five year life expectancy. And she was paying like $500 for Genuvia. And I was like, there's got to be something better we can do about this. You know, whether y you're getting enough benefit for it to really matter from Genuvia slash it's so expensive. Like that's just, doesn't, I don't know, I didn't really like that. Yeah. But on the other hand, they also uh, talk about um, more strict goals, which I thought was interesting, which we don't tend to agree with. But um, the goal they give for general population is seven, but they say it's reasonable to consider less than seven for um, patients who aren't having hypoglycemia or aren't having side effects um, and if they want to pursue that. Um, in general, we, we, we would disagree, though I would say, I guess, if they're not being, if they don't require any medicine, then sure, I mean, you know, yeah, they're just yeah. doing a lifestyle, and a keto, but just don't, you know, I, I wouldn't add on medicine or try to treat to push, to, them. To push it down lower. So, and that's actually what I tell patients too. When they ask me if they're going to be on medication forever, um, you know, I always tell them one, I can't for sure predict that one way or the other, the other. but what I tell them is like when you, the lowest I want to get your A1C is to like right around seven with medication. Right. Now, if you come back and your A1C, I haven't changed your medication all of a sudden your A1C is a six. That's when I know when it starts falling below that seven mark, that's when I know that, okay, maybe I need to start backing down on the medication so that I don't cause them to have hypoglycemia. Right. Um, I've had, I had a patient that came back for her second follow-up after reaching goal. Her A1C was a four or a 5.6, I think. And so I'm like, technically speaking, it's like on paper, she doesn't even have diabetes. So I right. literally stopped everything except one dose of metformin a day just for like the long-term right. benefits of it. But, you but know, yeah, she you was on Trulicity and she was on other things, but she made so many diet and lifestyle changes. It's like, I'm not going to keep her on those meds. Cause and I'm, you definitely can. Because I mean, diabetes is, is I mean, not curable as in you can like regenerate beta cells and stuff, but... Um, but for type two, where it's just become bariatric insulin. surgery, for instance, yeah, is a cure is, for, is a cure for can be a cure for diabetes, especially and, and type two, obviously. So life. So similarly, I suppose lifestyle um, can definitely make it to where you could come off almost all, if not all medication, if you get it low enough, for sure. Because yeah, if you're not on medication, go as low as you want. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, within reason, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right. Go to two. <laughs> why not? Don't go to two. You don't need any sugar. <laughs> Um, but so if you're wondering like why there's the discrepancy there, if, if you look back at some of the studies that have looked at, um, some of the, like the A1C, you know, goals and things like that, they've done several like head to head studies with more strict goal versus relaxed goals. The one I always think about is the Accord trial. So Accord basically took patients, um, and I think the more relaxed goal got to like a seven, five, I believe. And then the more strict goal, I think got down to a 6.4 they actually saw a higher chance of mortality in the more strict guidelines. And they, their initial goal, I think, was six, but they didn't even get there. They got 6.4, I think, was the average. Um, I may be off a little bit on those numbers, but no, I'm I think pretty 6. sure that's right. was, well, they were shooting for six, they got to 6.4. Okay, cool. So, you know, with and that's 6.4 is, I mean, there's several patients that I've seen that are, would meet, meet that criteria. And they actually had a higher chance of mortality. And the, the most of the mortality was stemming from um, hypoglycemia type, issues right and the but, drugs they were using at that time right were, yeah 
risky drugs. More risky to cause that kind of thing. So, but it was one of those things that, you know, because we didn't see not only any benefit, but we also saw increased harm in that particular trial. Um, We we kind of steer away from some of those more strict um, A1C, at least I do personally. I think Cole agrees. Um, But then they also had studies like uh, the advanced trial. They did uh, VADT. They did UKPDS. They did several studies and they basically saw that maybe some microvascular complications can be reduced as far as the risk, but macrovascular in yeah. regards to, you know, MI stroke, things like that, those are not the important things. things. Yeah. Things that um, kill you. And those are, those are not reduced with lower, um, A1C goals. And I think the, the type one, um, study that they did, like the DCCT and the edict trial, I want to say it was almost 20 years before you like truly saw a benefit from having the lower A1C goals. Like below 6.5 ish. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's one of those things if you have a much younger patient, you know, maybe in that case it'd be reasonable. But if you're dealing with somebody who's in their 50s, 60s, you know, yeah. comorbidities, I personally don't like to push them that low. No. But that's just me. But as far as hypoglycemia goes, they did add in a little blurb um, that the occurrence and risk for hypoglycemia should be reviewed at every encounter and investigated when need, when, when need be. Though I, I would feel that would be common sense. I guess they just threw that in there for completeness sake. Yeah. But speaking of Accord, they had some wonky things in here about blood pressure, and they reference Accord, right? Mm-hmm. What you're looking at? It? So they basically say, Cole caught me in a sip of my drink. I've been trying not to chew ice this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, That's why I use a straw. If you use a straw, you're not going to uh, chew Oh, that's a good call. Mm, it's also better for your teeth if you're, using, if you're drinking like a... You know, dark drinks like soda or hmm. coffee or whatever. Luckily for me, my f- sugar-free monster that I drink 24-7 is uh, perfect, clear. <laughs> clear color. and sugar-free. And sugar-free, so it's extra healthy. Um, so blood pressure and goals in diabetes. So they basically say that if a patient's ASCVD risk, so using that traditional um, ASCVD calculator, uh, they say that if the patient's ASCVD risk is greater than 15% or 15% or greater, um, then they want you to, to basically push them to a goal of 130 over 80. And then if it's less than 15, so they don't have as high a risk of having a 10-year um, event, uh, MI or stroke, then they, they use the goal of 140 over 90. So where does that come from? The trial that they actually like quote is the Accord trial again. Um, cause if you remember back in like 2017, that sprint trial came out and that kind of like, um, caused a big shift in the guidelines from like where they had JNC eight, they shifted it with the new American heart association guidelines to lower the, and make more strict the blood pressure goals. The problem is everybody quotes sprint for that that change, but the problem is, is that the sprint trial didn't include patients with diabetes. And the reason for that is because uh, patients um, in the ACCORD trial, they didn't see a difference um, in the blood pressure arm. So we've already talked about the strict A1C goals. Um, they also were studying blood pressure at the same time. So it was set up to be a two by two factorial study, which means that basically a patient was assigned to one of the two a1c groups and then also one of the two blood pressure groups so at the end of the study when they were looking at just blood pressure they did not see a difference in outcomes they, they did actually see a difference in there was a redu- reduced risk of stroke in the more strict blood pressure guy, um, group but that was it the mortality and all that stuff was the same so basically they said okay well i guess 140 over 90 is just as good as a lower blood pressure um and that's kind of what the guidelines are pushing here but the issue is because it was a two by two factorial study, if you think about it, there's patients that were enrolled that were in the strict A1C goal group as well as the strict blood pressure goal. We know that the lower A1Cs ended up increasing mortality so much so that they stopped the trial early. Um, so the question becomes, okay, did the patient not see a difference because you know, the, the benefit was kind of like negated based on their lower A1C. Um, and then the, the, the hypoglycemia and all that risk was basically taking away from the blood pressure benefit they were getting. Um, they didn't see a difference. And so we would hope the study was powered correctly so that we could not have to worry about type two error. So basically there's, um, there's a statistical difference, but you don't have enough patients there to detect said difference. Um, 
but the study was not powered appropriately. And so they didn't meet power. So they didn't have enough patients enrolled. And so we don't technically know if it was even, if there was truly a difference. Um, and we also, when they kind of looked through the, the data um, and they started taking away the patients who had been in the stricter A1C and they started looking at the blood pressure goals compared to each other of only the patients who were in the more relaxed A1C, the numbers started getting much closer to significance at that point, which we still obviously wasn't powered correctly. But to me, um, I think that because the way the study was, was kind of set up, you, they set themselves up for failure um, with seeing that added benefit of the, the blood pressure goals. Right. So we definitely don't like stricter A1C goals, but I'm not against higher like stricter blood pressure goal as long as the person's not having side effects and things. And if nothing else, we know that we reduce the risk of stroke. Right. And it makes a little more sense based on what we've seen. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. That's my long-winded answer to that. That's the Accord. The the Accord trial. Look it up. If you you, uh, need like an app or some like summaries, check out – it's not our app and we don't know these people, but um, it's in case you're thinking I'm plugging. (laughs) Um, The one I use personally is there's an app called Journal Club. But and we're definitely plugging. It's just whether or not we're getting paid to yeah, plug. Yeah, nah, this is just a, this is just my opinion. Um, but Journal Club, I think it's like six bucks or seven bucks to buy the app, and uh, they have really good summaries that have gone through like multiple steps of verification to make sure the information on there is accurate. But they have a good review of the. I think they still updated too. It's yeah, they been do. around for a while. They had the DAPA HF trial on there, and like which yeah. just came out somewhat recently. Pop the presses. Um, so they got a, yeah, they got a lot of good stuff. So another section that they revised and added a fair amount to is um, regarding technology and continuous glucose monitoring devices, which I think is pretty interesting um, because I've had multiple patients who, because usually when the the previous, you know, recommendations about um, the monitoring devices, which now there's the, um, there's a Freestyle Libre, um, I'm blanking on the other ones, but there's a couple others that are pretty frequently used and they're not actually super expensive, even if you have to pay out of pocket, but they require prescriptions to use. Usually they would only be covered or be prescribed if they were used in, um, uh, people who have an insulin pump or people who have multiple daily injections of insulin. But I've had people who aren't maybe inject insulin once or, um, even don't inject insulin at all, but are on maybe high risk medications that are higher risk for hypoglycemia and that sort of thing, or they just like to keep a really close eye on their sugars, which is good for them. And they didn't want to have to be sticking themselves three times a day who've purchased it out of pocket and I think have gotten very good benefit from it. So they've kind of broadened the scope of who they think can benefit from this. So they they still say that um, uh, with those, the multiple daily injections and the insulin pumps are going to get the most benefit, but they mentioned other forms of insulin therapy with a level of evidence C um, can be beneficial as well. So I think that's, that's pretty good. Um, if truthfully, if I was, if I had diabetes and I was taking probably more than one medication, I would get one for myself. Um, so I think that's nice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, checking your blood sugar that often, there's no chance I would do that. Right. I'd be the most un <laughs> non-adherent patient you've ever seen. No, I, I like data. And so if I could, be, I, I would, I would totally do it. You'd be graphing out your, Oh, for sure. Well, so, yeah. I mean, it does it for you. And you the, don't even have to buy the, um, you don't have to buy the device anymore. You can use your phone. You'd be the you'd be the patient who comes in with like folders, and be like, "Here's my graph." Oh yeah, yeah, that'd, that'd be, be good. Me. That'd be good. Be great. My patients don't usually do that. Um, so yeah, that's super interesting. Then, in regards to technology, they talk about digital health technology, and especially uh, in reference to like lifestyle management and pre-diabetes, but also um, managing your diabetes in general. So they talk about the options that are online with internet advice and coaching. Um, and how some of it kind of mirrors some of the DPP trials and that sort of thing. Um, my favorite part of this is they say that there's some of these that are FDA approved. Um, that FDA apparently monitors these, some that are clinically validated, um, digital, usually online health technologies, because they're actually intended to treat or um, in, intended to treat a medical or psychological condition. So they call these digital therapeutics or, in quotes, digiceuticals. Hmm. So I was like, who came up with that name? And I looked at the citation and it was the ADA, but also in conjunction with um, the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. So I realized, of course, that was a European who came up with that. Yeah. No offense to our friends across the board. No, that's pretty clever. I like yeah. it. Digiceuticals. Digiceuticals. So that's like that's on the space we need to be in. <laughs> we need to be in digiceuticals. Yeah, that's way cooler than what we're doing. So that is the uh, the online technologies they have to, to treat and prevent. Um but they also mention, yeah, they mention text messaging 
and um, various forms of technology, lifestyle coaching to aid in weight loss and increase physical activity. Um, yeah, so a lot of good good things that you can use to aid in their treatment and kind of leveraging technology towards that. Oh, they also mention because um, there's concerns about online privacy and stuff because a lot of people are putting their um, data like from their glucose monitors or their medications or whatever it is. And so there's concerns about that. Uh, but there are apparently established cloud-based data collection programs. A couple of them are Tidepool and Gluco, two things I've never heard of. Um, but they've been developed that are apparently um, HIPAA compliant hmm. options for you to store your 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 health data. That's cool. Yeah. HIPAA compliant. Mm-hmm. You want, you want to jump into some of these treatments? Sure. What you got? <clears throat> so... The part that probably hasn't, you're probably familiar with, hopefully at this point, is, you know, starting the patients off with metformin. Um, you know, that's kind of like our main uh, agent of choice for type 2 diabetes. Uh, and then there's even some patients that will get that as a type 1. Um, you don't really get hardly any A1C benefit from that, but you may get some reduction in um, cardiovascular events or uh, weight gain, things like that. So maybe, but um, as far as like type two diabetes, uh, metformin's almost always our first line agent, unless the patient just can't tolerate it or has some sort of like a contraindication um, to that drug. Um, But the question always is, okay, if that's not enough, which a lot of patients, especially I feel like the ones that colon I see with for diabetes because they're getting referred to us because they're so uncontrolled. Um, I like I had a patient today that came in to, me, to see me that had just metformin on their profile and their A1C was like a 13. And they're like, can I just keep taking the metformin and stop eating cookies? I'm like, maybe, but that uh, we really would need to use a second agent to kind of jumpstart the process because those diet changes take a while and you need to kind of get control of the glucose so your body can handle you know, the amount of sugar and kind of get back you know, on the horse, so to speak. Um, but so the next question is, what are we going to add to it? So the guidelines do do a very good job. They've gotten progressively better at kind of breaking up, um, the second agent to add based on comorbidities and whatnot. So the first one is if a patient has any sort of like established ASCVD, so, you know, they've had an MI, they've had, um, some kind of like other coronary artery disease they've had, um, you know, maybe like, um, peripheral arterial disease, something like that, then they have established ASCVD. Then um, if a patient has like ASCVD risk, so like if the patient has um, is greater than 55 years old and uh, has some kind of like coronary or carotid or lower extremity arterial um, artery stenosis or any kind of like left ventricular hypertrophy, then those patients would be considered high risk. And the recommended agent is going to be either a GLP-1 um, that has, and they actually specify, that has proven cardiovascular disease benefit or an SGLT-2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular disease benefit. So which, Cole, you want to go through the which ones actually what that means? Yeah, what does that mean? Um, oh, was, you want me to do it? <laughs> yeah, you can do right it. Right on. So um, as far as the uh, all these agents basically had to undergo cardiovascular safety trials. And what they started realizing is that these not only are they safe, some of these agents actually reduce cardiovascular risk. And so the GLP-1s, um, the first one we got the data with was, the, was Victoza. Um, and so that was like the leader trial mm-hmm. and you know, the, the patients included in that study were, were pretty high risk for having a cardiovascular, um, event in any way, but we saw that adding Victoza to the regiment decreases that risk. Then, um, some of the other studies, uh, it came out, I think, um, I think it was called Excel was the one for um, for Bidurion. It didn't turn out that well. Yeah, unfortunately, they did not have any benefit there. Um, No risk, but no benefit either. And then um, you had things like the Sustain 6 trial, which was the semaglutide, specifically Ozempic, not the oral semaglutide, but the... um, Injectable semaglutide ozempic, they showed their primary composite was superior, um, but their study was pretty short, and I think that they're undergoing a longer study um, currently, or there's at least one in the works. But um, the one that I like the most as far as cardiovascular outcomes is Trulicity. So the Rewind trial was their cardiovascular outcome, and they one, it was the longest trial as far as I think it went over five years, 
And also they included like 60 to 70% of the patients that were like not considered like high risk. They were primary prevention patients. They weren't glaringly high risk. And so this is probably the healthiest patient population looked at in these studies. And they still met statistical significance for superiority um, when you add on trulicity to these to patients that have diabetes in their regimen. So I like Trulicity's cardiovascular data probably the best, um, but all the other agents besides those three, Victoza, the Ozempic, because the, the semaglutide, the oral version, the Rebelsis didn't have the cardiovascular benefit from the Pioneer trials, and then Trulicity. Those three injectable GLP-1s are the ones with cardiovascular benefit. For SGLT2s, um, we have the Invocana, um, Canagliflozin, which was the... Um, Canvas trial, mm-hmm. and then we have the um, Impareg outcomes trial with Impagliflozin, and then um, there was the Declare Timmy thirty something um, trial 32? for 32, 31, 33, something like that. Some thirties, yeah. It was Declare Timmy. I know that um, was the uh, Depagliflozin. That one didn't show reduction in mortality, but it did um, reduce hospitalizations, which is why they went so hard on the heart failure side of things with. Depagliflozin. Right. Unfortunately, Stiglatro, the uh, Ertagliflozin is the new kid on the block. No benefit whatsoever in any of the categories. I remember a um, a Farsiga rep uh, before the Farsiga data had come out. I think it was a lunch at a doctor's office just trying to tell everybody that it was a you know, class benefit. It was after the Impreg had come out, but before Farsiga's data had come out. Telling everybody it was a class benefit, and it's like, oh, yeah, just use Farsiga. It's fine. It's a class benefit. It's fine. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I had a lunch with um, the drug. It was a virtual meeting, luckily. Um, but these drug reps were trying to tell me how awesome Stiglatro was. And I was I know, I was like, I told myself I'm not going to make a scene. <laughs> I'm not going to call them on their nonsense. But finally, they just kept going on and on about the same kind of thing, like class effect. And I'm like, it, it's not. Like, you're lying. So finally, I was like, well... <laughs> What, you know, I, the reason why we tend to use Jardians more is because of the Emperor. I, I, blah, blah, blah. I was trying to be nice about it. And then the one guy who claimed to be a pharmacist. <laughs> alleged pharmacist. Alleged pharmacist. He's like, uh, he's, he's sitting there and he's, he goes, you know, I don't really know why we get so hung up on like these outcomes. <laughs> I was like, what did he just say? <laughs> Like, because uh, that's the whole point of treating patients. It was, it was. I don't ridiculous. know why we get caught up on these outcomes when there's so much money to be made. Right. Just stop worrying about which one's better. <laughs> stop worrying about. And just use ours. Stop worrying about mortality. What does mortality mean anyway? Right. right? Who, Who needs who to lives? live forever? Who dies? Whatever. Who's to say we're not going to play God? <laughs> it is ridiculous. It was the most stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. And so uh, I, I just I looked looked at my buddy who was one of my PA buddies who was sitting next to me, and he's like he sees my face. So he started dying laughing. And so these people are trying to like be all professional and give us a thing. And me and him are just like, I got to go. I can't deal with this anymore. You know, it's, people may listen to us and think um, we're pompous. I think back to when we first started the podcast, um, the Trulicity data hadn't come out yet. I remember mm-hmm. us in one of the first couple episodes talking about the Rewind trial. And because we were all big on Victoza at that point, mm-hmm. there was no um, semaglutide. Trulicity's data hadn't come out. And, um, but when it comes out and it looks good, oh, well, sure, right. that's fine. You know, things are constantly changing. Yeah. So, yeah. And if, if we sound like, because we've been called narcissistic or whatever that people have said before. Oh, did we? Yeah. Some guys said they're super <laughs> narcissistic. I was like, we're, so just to be clear, I'm an idiot. Oh, that was when he took your uh, comment totally out of context. Yeah. So we're idiots and, and especially me, especially, I'm an idiot in a lot of different areas. <laughs> I'm not, this isn't my opinion. I'm literally just reading the data that other, that actual smart people. Everybody's doing what other, other smart people yeah, said. Yeah, I'm just repeating, I'm like a parrot. I'm just repeating what they yeah. said. Be, mad, be yeah. mad at them yeah. if you want to be mad at somebody. So I'm definitely not, please don't take this as us being cocky because we're definitely not, I'm admitting right now, I'm a moron a lot of times. <laughs> the the whole drug rec thing, which I have to interface with drug reps a lot more in my new job, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are super nice and very helpful and stuff. It Whenever it's about a drug that I know to be, not as good as an alternative, but they're that's, trying to push it. That's yeah, when I always that's get this problem. I get this always all, this bad feeling inside. Like, how is why do we have you guys again? Like, what? Well, imagine what, trying what? to be the one selling that drug. I know that would suck. That's why I hate selling anything. Like, our, which I guess we have to sell stuff sometimes in a way. Like, we have to sell to the patients. Mm-hmm. Like, this is good for you, right? But I guess that's different because we know that. But maybe they convince themselves that in some ways it is. You know, we uh, like for our, our Trulicity rep. Um, she's fantastic and i like literally 
she, she comes in and she's like, what do you guys need? And just gives us whatever we need. Like, I have zero interest in like trying to talk to her about the studies. Cause they're like, I'm like the, the studies have been done. They're proven. It's effective. Like she's got a sweet job. She gets to promote a drug that really has good data. People are trying to promote these other ones that have no data. It's like, geez. yeah, which I mean, that's what they have to do. I get it. Like, yeah. I don't hold it against them. Yeah, it's, yeah of it's course really, not. It's the bigger. I just would. I, I'd be like the worst at that job. Oh, I would too. I'd be like, okay, I'd be like, here so, it is. so here's the sucks, deal. Sucks. This is what I need to tell you, but this is yeah, here's the reality. This drug sucks. Right. I just I gotta eat. So like, <laughs> if you could just like buy like one box, that'd be <laughs> awesome. The other guys are way better. <laughs> I tried to get a job with them. They said no. <laughs> <laughs> the worst salesman ever. Yeah, it'd be terrible. I couldn't do. It. It's the same thing with the the ads. Like I don't get the ads. Yeah, they just don't make sense to me. I hear you. I don't understand it. So yeah, and it was a long story short about uh, you know the cardiovascular data. But we're not supposed to get that existential. Yeah, whatever. It's fine. It's our podcast. <laughs> so the uh, now, if those two aren't an option for whatever reason, and the patients can't tolerate those for whatever reason, um, then they basically go from there and they say like you could potentially use a TZD um, or a DPP-4 inhibitor if the patient is not on a GLP-1. Please do not put a patient on a DPP-4 inhibitor like Genuvia if they're already on Victoza or Trulicity or GLP-1. Please don't do that. It makes no sense. Like they're on the same exact pathway. DPP-4 is basically the enzyme that breaks down your natural GLP-1. So when you're injecting a synthetic GLP-1 receptor agonist, it's already like resistant to the effects of your natural DPP-4. Inhibition of that doesn't really provide any additional benefit and causes probably more GI upset and things like that and a lot more money. Please don't do that. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah. And they also talk about CKD. So um, did you already talk about CKD? Mm -hmm. Okay. So they also talk about CKD and we won't go too too in depth with it for the sake of time, but it's, it's interesting with heart failure and CKD and cardiovascular outcomes and that sort of thing. They mention to consider these independent of baseline A1C. They just want you to consider one of these medications because they have a separate benefit, which um, to my mind, I think that is a, a new. So this algorithm that they have on here is totally different than what we saw in school a few mm, years ago. Very different. So if you're a professor listening or somebody who teaches on this, you're probably going to want to update your algorithms because it's totally different. But this is this is kind of cool because um, they take all of this independent of a1c or even hypoglycemia where which is an emphasis of a lot of algorithms which is important but they just make this separate which is good so if they have ckd with albuminuria then preferably you're going to be on an sglt2 that has evidence reducing ckd progression Um, without albuminuria then um, they would need type 2 diabetes plus ckd um, with a certain GFR, and then you're kind of considering them to be at higher cardiovascular risk. So then you're considering a GLP-1 that has cardiovascular benefit, which we've discussed, um, or an SGLT-2 with cardiovascular benefit. So they need to have that albuminuria for you to to want to be straight for the GLP-1 to reduce the risk of CKD progression. And basically, too, if, if a patient... Kind of keep in mind, if, if a patient has CKD, depending on where their renal function is, the lower the renal function, the less kind of benefit you're going to have with an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, However, they are using these now in in patients that have CKD that don't even have um, diabetes. So like these, these, all these drugs are all being looked at in just CKD patients. Um, It started off with like the Credence trial with Invokana and basically saw that, yes, you lose some of the A1C lowering of the uh, abilities of um, these agents when you give them to someone as their renal function declines. However, the um, part, the, kidney protection mm-hmm. um, nephro protection is still there and so that's why before they had that data they would be like yeah these are pretty much useless if you have a low yeah, gfr but exactly now there's a different medication and so most of these are approved for like patients that have a creatinine clearance um less than 30 i think is what they've most been pushed down to but some of the more recent like heart failure and ckd studies that they've done with these agents have um i think the last one with um i think it was the emperor um study with uh with Invo- with um Jardians. Jardians um, used a, had, had a cutoff of 20 for their EGFR. So definitely. It was just Empereg renal or something, right? Well, there's one that was heart failure. Their um, heart failure study used it down to a creatinine clearance down to 20. I do know that for a fact because I know the DAPA HF was 25. And so we have data in. Jardians more. down to yeah. 20. 
So you can be used for it safely in those lower patients. You just probably won't get the same A1C lowering right. the lower your, your EGFR goes. Right. So also heart failure. If you have a patient that has diabetes plus heart failure, specifically if they have reduced ejection fraction heart failure, um, then you're going to want to use one of the evidence-based um, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. So ideally either... Um, the like from the DAP HF trial, so Depagliflozin or um, Impagliflozin, um, and then I think I haven't, I can't even remember the Invokana data for that. I don't even know if it's out yet. I'm not. I have to go back and look. But um, those two for sure have have uh, outcome data with those. And I know with the Jardians, um, their trial was done in patients that had I want to say their um, ejection fraction was like in the 20s on average. So it was like more sick patients. Um, they didn't get quite as good of results as the Farziga folks did on that one. Um, cause I think like the Farziga had mortality and other stuff. Um, but both of them have reduction in hospitalizations. Uh, but yeah, you're using one of those agents and it helps with multiple areas, not just as a, like for the diuretic effect, but also, um, there's several different, um, potential mechanisms that if you're really interested, there's, there's a good study that kind of explains those. But yeah, so those are the three like comorbidities they specifically mention. Right. They say metformin, then can if they have one of these, consider this before you even consider A1C. Because you can add other things on. So um, if the if they don't have one of these high-risk conditions um, and you're looking for A1C lowering, then there's a couple other things that I want you to consider. So one is hypoglycemia, another is weight, and another is cost. So I think that's pretty dead on. I mean, those are things that we consider when we're choosing um, diabetes medications if we're not considering comorbidities for the most part. Um, I take some issue with the way they um, they talk about the hypoglycemia only because they put um, the four kind of standard classes that you would think of being low risk, DPP-4, GLP-1, SGLT-2, and TZD, the thiazolidinediones, um, kind of all together, kind of like you could choose any of those four, but you'd probably have a preference. Um, the main preference being GLP-1, then SGLT-2, um, and then, I don't know, it's a toss-up with the TZD <laughs> or the DPP-4s, but it kind of depends on what's going on. It depends on if you if you feel like you could, if insulin sensitivity would be beneficial, maybe TZD, um, and I don't know that I would if even you need still to give, give the DPP-4. If, if you decide to give a medication and don't want any change to the A1C, you give the DPP-4 inhibitor. <laughs> and you want to spend a lot of money. <laughs> right. Then you go straight to DPP-4 inhibitors. Yeah. I mean, I, they, they probably, they're very wimpy. They probably end up on insulin before I would do a DPP-4. Yeah. I can't remember the last person that. It was probably somebody who just absolutely refused to be on injections, injections and, and couldn't. Well, they should be on a, oh, okay, no injections, no GLP-1, I guess. Yeah, and, and couldn't be uh uh, and I think they were already on it as GLT-2, and then they had risk for hypoglycemia. So I think that's when I went to yeah. DPP-4. And they could, they would, they first, their insurance wouldn't pay for Rebelsis because I know someone's yeah. like, there's an oral GLP-4. Right. So, yeah, that was that was the last person I remember doing that. It's been like once in the past several months. So, yeah, they give those four options, and it's like, if they A1C is still above target, if you can't use this one, then go to, this the one. go to this one, go to this one. That's kind of the way it is. But it, if we're preferencing, it's going to be GLP-1. SGLT2, maybe TCD in certain situations, probably not DPP4. Um, but that kind of brings us to cost. So cost th throws a huge um, hiccup into things, and their preferences with the cost issue is TZD and sulfonylureas. Um, okay, those are the cheapest ones. Um, those are still not great options, right? So um, in a lot of instances, even for uninsured or underinsured patients, if you do some work, you can probably get them on um, other patient medications, assistance. patient assistance, um, state assistance that provides medications, even if you have to refer them out to a different clinic that has access to cheaper drugs or whatever, usually there are, um, some options before just sticking them on a sulfonylurea because you want them to, get, to have the best therapy possible. If all else fails, of course, these are options and it's better than having their, their, you know, sugars run in the five hundreds. Um, but you know, we'd like them to be on other things if possible. So if you're not familiar with some of those programs, one, if you're not sure if one exists, Google, you know, whatever the drug name is, 
manufacturer patient assistance. Um, but to give you an example, like um, Trulicity is very expensive. Even in some of like the FQHCs that have 340B pharmacies, so like where I work, Trulicity is still expensive because you know we it's much cheaper than in a retail pharmacy, but still more than most people have. And so I had a patient just this week who um, it's a lower income patient, has no insurance whatsoever, um, and uh, lives by himself. And he was on glimepiride because they kind of assumed that was the only thing they could get. Um, I send in his his income verification and some other paperwork and a prescription for Trulicity to um, Lilly, the company that makes Trulicity. They have a company or a program called Lilly Cares. Sent them. He got approved. Now he gets Trulicity for free for a year. Right. Um, and then they'll renew him at that point if he still is considered low income. And usually if it is a brand name medication without a generic, then the company, I mean, almost all the companies have some sort of program like this. Yeah. Um, and I think they might be even required to have a program like this or something like that. Um, yeah. Some. I think they get some type of... Um, Tax sure. break, so they get something for yeah. it. Yeah, it's probably to keep people off their back about the ridiculous prices right. they charge for some of these things. But usually there is an enrollment form um, that um, the patient may need to sign or the doctor may need to sign, um, and then they might need a letter of financial hardship or just income verification, like Mike said. You fax that in, they get them enrolled, and usually they have case managers that kind of handle that sort of thing. Bada bang, bada boom. We've got <laughs> them on a good drug for at least a year, and then they should be able to re-up if, if they need to. So a little extra work. Um but to get them on better therapy. Good example. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, what about weight gain or to minimize weight gain or promote weight loss? Right. And so that's important because we can do both of those things with these drugs, right? So historically, the big issue with um, with insulin is that it causes weight gain, right? And um, other other uh, medications like the cheap, the older ones were either weight neutral or you gained weight. But the GLP ones, you can actually get some fair weight loss. Same with SGLT2s. Um, um, the Victoza um, is branded as Saxenda. Higher doses of Victoza is branded as Saxenda for weight loss. It's an injectable. Um, so yes, if you are um, need to minimize weight gain or promote weight loss, then you would want to consider an SGLT2 or a GLP-1. And then if either one of those doesn't work, consider the other. And that's kind of the best best options for for weight gain or loss with drug therapy. Obviously promote weight management and physical activity, of course. So um, one of the things to keep in mind too, so Sexenda, like Cole said, is the one that's approved right now for weight loss, like the GLP-1 that's approved in patients that don't have diabetes. However, be kind of on the lookout for semaglutide also getting that because they just had uh, their step four trial come out um, somewhat recently. I think it came, the data was finally released in like mid last year, somewhere like that. Um, and they're, they have by far the greatest weight loss benefit of all the GLP ones. Oh, yeah. Um, so it was, check that out. Step four was the name of the trial. It, it'll be a, a, a shoe in as far as getting approved for weight loss. Um, but even the ADA guidelines, they have it listed as far as the amount of, um, weight loss to expect. Um, they say that semaglutide by far is the first or, you know, the top, then liraglutide, um, Victoza, and then dulaglutide, Trulicity, then Exenatide and Lixacenatide, which is Adlixin. Most of you probably haven't even heard that because it's trash, but, um, and that makes sense, too, because like liraglutide and dilaglutide were compared head to head and their A1C lowering was the same in the award six trial. But the weight loss was still better with Victoza. Mm -hmm. So that's where they're getting that rating scale from. Right. So, yeah, that's uh, be on the lookout for that. So semaglutide most likely will will be uh, coming out with the weight loss version at a higher dose. I think it was like two point four milligrams was the dose they used. 2.4. You know what kind of weight loss that guy? Um, I don't have it right in front of me. I remember the Victoza stuff was a few kilograms, maybe two or three, which ends up being like seven or eight pounds just standardly just without doing anything else. So if it's better, then I imagine it's upwards of 10. This was like 18% of their weight was lost oh, over gosh. 68 weeks. Um, 68 or 68? 68. 68. Yeah. That's a long so time. So like a little bit over a year, they lost 17%, Um uh, in let's I have to pull it up to get the exact numbers, but it was significant. But it was the best, yeah, by far. So it must be upwards. It was of way more than it was probably more than three kilograms then. or whatever it was. Yeah, wow, it's amazing. Yeah, so very cool. very good. So be on the lookout for that. There you go. Um, let's see, what else have we not talked about as far as oh injectables? We almost skipped injectables. So. If you have a patient who, let's say their A1C is elevated to the point where you know oral agents are not going to be able to get them down, um, 
the ADA guidelines used to say, you know, obviously basal insulin was kind of like the first thing that we would go to. Now um, with injectable therapy, on top of, you know, having patients kind of be enrolled in some kind of diabetes education, um, things like that, um, they basically say if injectable therapy is needed, um, consider a GLP-1 in most patients prior to insulin. So when you look at, I've heard this question come up too, like people ask like, well, what kind of A1C lowering would we expect with the GLP-1? Usually the textbook answer is like one to one and a half percent. Insulin can be like whatever, because insulin doesn't technically have a, you can reduce it to zero if you really wanted to. Um, not advised. <laughs> the uh, But but that's speaking from trials that like literally were one kind of short term. And also these patients weren't enrolled in like a diabetes education program and all these things. I've had personally seen patients who after meeting with me to get their meds switched and then meeting with our dietitian um, and then being monitored very closely, I've seen patients go from like a 13, 14% A1C down to literally like a seven or eight in three months. Like it's crazy how much of a benefit you can get when you with have just a, a full, yeah, with metformin and trilicity. Yeah. That's, that's usually my go-to combo. Um, and so when you have the whole diabetes education package, um, you can expect much more uh, you know, which is, I think is why they kind of say, you when know, you have the Corvina sure. deluxe. Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. So GLP one's first. And then if GLP one is not, um, you know, maybe they're already on that or it's, you know, they can't get it from cost reasons or whatever, or you prefer insulin, try to start with basal insulin if you can. Um, and then go from, from there, from basal, you would add usually if you needed mealtime insulin on top of that, usually you do the biggest meal first, then add the second biggest and then the third. Try, if possible, not to go to three meals right off the bat. If you try to take someone from one injection to three injections a day, it's not Four gonna, with basil. Yeah, exactly. It's not going not gonna to work. That's what I meant. Thank you, Cole. I can't add today. <laughs> but um, with I've also seen patients who are on three injections of prandial insulin, like Novolog, having tons of hypoglycemic events, switch them to Trulicity once a week and completely stop their prandial insulin. A1C is way better Yeah, because they're not having the hypos anymore, so they're not over-treating. And everything just kind of gets smooth and, and smooth sailing from there. Yeah. And with P and uh, people with commercial insurance, so if we're not talking about cost issues, you can get these things covered. Like mm -hmm. it's do a PA, yep. you can get them covered. It's like it's not like it was two years ago. Yeah. If you're an insurance company and your preferred GLP-1 is by Durian, <laughs> get the heck out of here. Yeah, by Durian B-Size. Get out of here with <laughs> that on, nonsense. Inferior, literally, they, they spent a bunch of money to prove that they were inferior to Victoza. They have no cardiovascular benefits, and you still prefer them. You need to go to jail. <laughs> well, somebody's it's ridiculous. Somebody's some, getting a kickback at this patient's expense. Somebody's created a contract, and mm. uh, they're getting that stuff cheap, man. I hate it. Drives yeah. me crazy. I sit there and argue with this PA people, <laughs> the prior authorization people. It's just some some call person like he's like I don't know what you're talking. This guy's about. so angry. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> um, one thing I'll mention too. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but uh, basal insulin. So we know we've had like Lantus forever, and then they came out a few years back with Basaglar. So it wasn't a um, biosimilar because it's insulin. They have to call it like a follow-on, I think yeah. is the technical term for it. But now they have the uh, the other one that's insulin glargy now, Semgly. Oh, yeah. So that's the one that I know in South Carolina, that's the one that I think First Choice prefers, First Choice Medicaid. So I ended up that's having new to then. Yeah, switch a couple people to Semgly um, this past month because they're all sitting there, basically our Atlantis wasn't covered. Hmm. So, Yeah. Throw that out there in case you haven't heard it. There's also, I have to look up the name of it, but there's also a um, Lispro that's another follow-on as well. I can't remember. Uh, Super ultra-fast acting or whatever? So that was like the the uh, Fasipa. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's a new one that just came out. It's, um, shoot, hang on, I'll tell you. Looking stuff up on the podcast. <laughs> um, Lamjev. That's the name. That's oh, we talked, we talked about that at one point. Did we? Because I, I remember the stupid name. Mm, that is a very dumb name. Whoever came up with that, shame on you. Lamb Jiv? Something like that. It's L and then Yum and Jiv. Lamb Jiv. That sounds like, some, that sounds like uh, something you get in the meat section of Walmart. Maybe. One of those things that you don't want to eat, the mm, Lamb Jiv. The Lamb Jiv. Yeah. yeah. Take up God. one pound of Lamb Jiv because... What company was that? That's poor poor marketing. Yeah, I don't know. Trulicity is a, it's a, it's a nice name. Yeah. Lamb Jiv? Yeah, Lily needs to pay that. us for all this uh, free press, by I the know, way. Man. So if you're Lily rep, hook us up. <laughs> <laughs> I 
patients assume I work for them sometimes because I'll be pushing true listening and they're like, <laughs> right. like look at me real suspicious I'm like dude it's just because it's an easy drug it's not because I'm getting paid I wish I was getting paid but I'm not there you go well there you go you can be a drug you can sell the stuff yeah if the drug's good I'll be <laughs> I'll be an amazing salesman if it sucks I'm gonna be like oh geez I can't well, do good this. you guys got uh, you know you got a little bit of updated guidelines you got some review and um, we've discovered that me and Mike would make terrible salesmen yep I like how you have to sell them after the episode's over. Remember, you did learn something. Remember, you didn't waste your time entirely <laughs> over this last hour. We did learn maybe something, maybe not. It's called summarizing. I'm bringing it all home. No, no, that's good. Yeah. It's like the teach back method, only different. <laughs> Except I taught you and then taught you again. Yeah. And just explain that I did, in fact, teach you something <laughs> and you need to be thankful. <laughs> man, anything else with this? That's all I got, man cool all right you guys thank you so much for listening i hope that was somewhat helpful um if you have any questions concerns comments whatever uh, our, our emails will be in the show notes you can reach out to us on any of the social media platforms shoot me a text directly um at the area code 415-943-6116 um and then we definitely would look forward to uh hearing from you thank you guys so much for those of you who have uh, subscribed to patreon um that helps us out tremendously and supports the show and uh, i hope you guys are enjoying like the lectures and powerpoint slides and all that good stuff but um yeah thank you guys so much for listening greatly appreciate it y'all stay warm don't don't get snowed in see you